Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus. So we come back to Exodus this morning. We are coming to the end of the Ten Commandments, so turn to Exodus uh, chapter 20. This is actually going to be uh, part two of the Ninth Commandment, uh, verse 16. If you haven't brought a Bible with you this morning, our uh, passage is found on page 61 in the Pew Bibles in the Pew Racks in front of you. We, as we've done with a few of the commandments, we've looked at them first from the negative side, and then we look at them from the positive side. We see it's stated in the negative, you shall not, but we're also going to look today at what this means positively that we should do. So here, God's word, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Amen. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, we do ask that you would write your perfect law on our hearts this morning. Teach us your ways and help us, we pray, to walk in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, I'm not sure if it's still on the air or not or some variation of it, but there was a a TV show called To Tell the Truth, and there were three contestants. Uh, One of the contestants, one of the three had an occupation, and the other two were liars, basically, uh, pretending to be the the one who had this particular occupation. The, the, the idea was the celebrity panel was to guess the one uh, who had the uh, occupation, the one, the real one with the occupation. They were star panelists and they got to ask the different um, people, the contestants, questions. The two imposters were able to lie and say whatever whatever they wanted. The real contestant, however, had to tell the truth. And then the panelists would vote on the one for the one who was really telling the truth or who they believed was really telling the truth. In our world, it is often difficult to know who is really telling the truth. We live in a world where we lie. People around us lie. As we saw two weeks ago, they lie regularly. Alistair Begg, in his book, Lasting Love, tells the story of several years ago, he says, staying with a family when a young man came for a date with one of the daughters. While waiting for her, he sat confidently in the living room and talked with the mother. He boasted about how well he was doing in sales and added how it was necessary to tell little white lies to customers. 
For example, to keep from losing business to the competition, he would promise delivery dates when he knew there was no possibility of meeting them. He seemed quite pleased with himself. The girl was drawn to his good looks and eager for a relationship. They went out on the date, and eventually the two of them got married. Sadly, as Begg puts it, their decision was premature, and a messy divorce followed. The girl had known about the guy's predilection for little untruths, but wasn't concerned. In the interest of advancing the relationship, she figured she could get married first and work on her husband later. But she discovered that he was much more masterful at deceit than she had expected. The marriage crumbled around them. Chuck Colson, several years ago, put it this way, that we live in a post-truth age. And he actually said this in two different ways. He said, we live in an age where we people do not believe in absolute truth anymore, and people don't tell the truth in their personal affairs. In fact, several, many, many years before that, George Orwell said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. The Ninth Commandment, as we saw last time we were together, looking at this, is basically a commandment for the courtroom, not bearing false witness against your neighbor. The language, as we saw last time, is primarily legal language, although it is more broadly applied. We can more broadly apply it, and Scripture, in fact, does. It forbids lying. But the positive side is it requires telling the truth. As in the court of law, we are to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is what God requires. And in fact, it reflects the character of God. Titus 1-2 says, God who never lies. Christ himself is the way the truth, and the life. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. So it reflects the Godhead. And we are called to reflect the character of God. We are to be not only a people of the truth, capital T, truth, but we are to be a people of truth, in our daily speech, in our daily life, in our daily interactions with others. Now, this commandment, of course, again, can be applied more broadly, and there are positive aspects. Uh, in your, in your um, bulletin, whatever this thing's called, on the very back, um, I have... We have question 144 from the Westminster Larger Catechism. I'm going to ask you to keep that handy because we're going to refer to um, some of these statements in the catechism here. 
Uh, But the question is, what are the duties required in the ninth commandment? And that's exactly what we're going to look at this morning. And we can basically uh, break this down into three broad categories. This ninth commandment calls, first of all, we can say, for the preserving and promoting of the truth. Preserving and promoting of the truth. We see that line here, if you look at the end, uh, uh, basically the first two lines, the duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of the truth between man and man. The baseline there is be truthful, be accurate, avoid exaggeration. We often want to impress. We often exaggerate our abilities, our accomplishments. We hear it all the time with our politicians who often love to take credit for something that they may have had some minor influence on, but they like to take credit for it. There was a football coach a little over 20 years ago. Many of you may remember this story. Back in 2001, a guy by the name of George O'Leary, who was hired for his dream job, head football coach at the University of Notre Dame. Now, Notre Dame is not quite as good today in football as they were Uh, 20-some years ago, but this was uh, one of the most prestigious football programs, I guess in many ways still is. He was introduced to the media as as their head football coach, and a a reporter wanted to do a larger story on him. He began to look into his background. He looked at his resume, and he wanted to find out more about George O'Leary from some of the guys that he played college football with at the University of New Hampshire, which is on his resume, three-year letterman at the University of New Hampshire. So he contacted some of the guys who played in those years when George was there, but none of them had ever heard of George O'Leary, of his teammates, evidently. He never played college football. He, he added it actually several years earlier when he first applied for a coaching job and left it on his resume and it came back to bite him, to hurt him. He was a good coach, but he ended up getting caught and he was forced to resign five days after he was hired by the University of Notre Dame. The reality is, brothers and sisters, we must tell the truth in a world of lies. Boys, men cannot be girls, women. God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. It means that we live not by lies, to use the title of an excellent 
book by Rod Dreher, actually using a phrase from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, warning of the soft totalitarianism, as he puts it, that is on the rise even in our own country. In that vein, it includes, as Confession goes on to say, appearing and standing for the truth. You see that line in, uh, see that statement in line three, and speaking the truth. We see that phrase in line four, appearing and standing for the truth and speaking the truth. What does that mean? First and foremost, in one sense, speaking the truth means speaking for and speaking the truth of God's word. This is what scripture says. The truth of the gospel. Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by it. We are to promote the truth by speaking the word of God, by standing for the truth of God's word. It also includes standing for and with others. We see that here in this larger description, standing for and with others, defending others. When they're unfairly attacked, not being silent in just causes. Silence itself at particular times can be a form of lying. It includes speaking the the truth, developing a practice of truth. Telling, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth, however, in love. In love. It determines not just what we say, but how we say it. John Stott writes of that statement in Ephesians 4, truth becomes hard if not softened by love. Love becomes soft, if not strengthened, by truth. Speak the truth, but we speak it in love. This, of course, requires of us a willingness to confront, to confront others. But it also requires the wisdom to be silent and when to be silent. At times, or to know what to say and how to say it. Learning tact is an ally as far as wise conversation goes. This also, this commandment also forbids half truths. Half truths. To tell a truth as far as it goes, but leave out maybe what might be unfavorable to us. What might be unfavorable. We're commanded to speak the truth 
the whole truth when we need to. Dr. Diane Kemp, in her book, Anatomy of a Lie, tells the story of a time when she cared for a nine-year-old boy with a deadly brain tumor. She writes this, I have never known a child with that tumor to survive more than a year. One of my partners had the difficult task of telling his parents the diagnosis and prognosis. That doctor had told them the whole truth and nothing but. I know his style, patient, thorough, compassionate. Young Kyle went through radiation treatments. With that and the help of steroids, most of his symptoms went away. About a month after the treatment ended, I I repeated the MRI to see where things stood. The pattern of black and white and gray said that nothing had changed. How much nicer it would have been if all the sinister shadows had disappeared, if only for a little while. How, I wondered, would I tell the family this? Kyle was in the room when his mother asked the results. I have some good news, I told her. The tumor has not progressed. Well, my hopeful spin was true, half true, but neither had the tumor gone away. That evening, Kyle's mother and I were guests on a local television talk show. Kyle was there, too, sitting between us in a spiffy three-piece vested suit. At the end of the, at the, end of the interview, his mother said directly to the camera, I have to tell you what happened today. Today, Dr. Comp told me that my baby is going to be okay. There was another doctor we called Dr. Gloom and Doom, but Dr. Comp told me my son would be okay. How could I correct her in front of her son, in front of the television audience? I smiled weakly, regretting that I had so softened the news that she had drawn that incorrect conclusion. We need to speak the truth, and we need to speak the whole truth in love, in the right way, at the right time. Secondly, it means protecting the good name of our neighbor. We see that at the end of line two. Promoting, preserving and promoting the good name of our neighbor. Last time we, we talked about someone coming to talk to us about someone else. And I said, when someone comes with gossip or someone comes, what do we do? You say, stop. Don't listen. Say, go to that person and talk. I don't want to hear it. Go to that person, the other person. Verse 6, line 6, sorry, this is not scripture. Line 6, we're to have a charitable esteem of our neighbors. This is essential to love your neighbor as yourself, to think well of them to be able to overlook their sins and their weaknesses. 
Notice the line here, loving and desiring and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. Rejoicing in their good name versus envy. We often envy others where we are called to rejoice in their good name. J.C. Ryle writes this, Ambition, self-esteem, and self-conceit lie deep at the bottom of all men's hearts, and often in the hearts where they least expect it. Thousands fancy that they are humble who cannot bear to see an equal more favored and honored than themselves. Few indeed can be found who rejoice heartily in the neighbor's promotion over their, over their own. The quantity of envy and jealousy in the world is a glaring proof of the prevalence of pride. Men would not envy a brother's advancement if they had not a secret thought that their own merit was greater than his. Be thankful for the success, the popularity of others. Be in sorrow for them in their hard times, their bad times. The larger catechism goes on freely acknowledging their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report, and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. I quoted Two weeks ago, Luther's quote, I'll say it again this morning, reputation is something quickly stolen, but not quickly returned. We we are to seek the good name of others, to repent of our tendency to think the the worst of others. Again, again, Simeon's laws, two of them that we looked at two weeks ago, to hear his, his law for himself was to hear as little as possible what is to the prejudice of others. And one other statement, always to believe that if the other side were heard, a very different account would be given of the matter. Note also, this, the catechism puts it, includes defending our own good name as well as others when required. The third line says, as well as our own. As well as our own. This doesn't mean that we're constantly on the defensive, but there are times when it is good and right to defend our own good name. There's a headline several years ago in a business magazine that said this, the worse off your neighbors are, the happier you become. And that was based on a study. The worse off your neighbors are, the happier you become. Don't let that 
be true of you. The reality is the world does not love its neighbor. The world loves self. We love to see the name of our neighbor diminish. But what are we called to do? We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're called to rejoice in their flourishing, in their good gifts that God has given to them and truly delight in the gifts that they have. Third and finally and more briefly, keeping third thing that this requires is keeping promises and practicing truth. Look at the final two lines. It actually begins at the end of the third line from the bottom keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing whatever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. Keeping promises. We need to keep, of course, our marriage promises, our vows. But this, of course, has gone by the wayside in our culture today. No one keeps their, or many do not keep their wedding promises their marriage vows anymore. We have a a common saying today. Promises were what? Made to be broken. That should not be true of us. Sometimes we use, you use it as a punchline. Promises, promises. It should not be true of us. We need to take promises seriously. Why? Because God takes promises seriously. He expects when we make promises that we keep our promises, at least as long as we are able. He keeps his promises. He expects us to do the same. This end of this Statement answer here also refers to studying and practicing what is true and honest and lovely and of good report. We are to give ourselves, to devote ourselves to what is true. As the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Don't dwell on negative things. Don't dwell on the unlovely. Don't think on the hurts that you've experienced, the wrongs that have been done to you the nastiness of other people, something you don't like about that particular person. Dwell on the good and the lovely and the pure. Kent Hughes, who was a longtime pastor, written several wonderful books in his book, Disciplines of Grace, also reminds parents of how important it is to teach our children to learn to tell the truth. He writes this, The temptation to lie is always present. 
the opportunities surface very early in the life of a child. Once a child begins to lie, habits of lying develop quickly. And not just telling outright lies, but also sinful words that distort the truth, such as exaggeration, flattery, and self-disparagement for personal advantage. Distorting the truth becomes second nature to the child. Therefore, it is imperative to teach young people to describe events clearly and accurately, always. Only then does telling the truth become a habit. He says, Samuel Johnson writes, Accustom your children constantly to this. If a thing happened at one window, and they, when relating it, say it happened at another, do not let it pass but instantly check them. You do not know where deviation from the truth will end. Teach our children to tell the truth. Speaking the truth is vital. Lying is a sin against God. Lying affects individual relationships. Lying can affect whole communities. Paul in Ephesians 4.25 says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you that you are a God of truth we thank you that you have given us the truth of your word and the one who is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, O oh God, it is only in Christ and by your spirit that we can be truth-tellers. It is only because Christ died for our sins and has made us a new creation that we can truly Tell the truth. And so, O God, we ask that you, in Christ, by your Spirit, would continue to make us new in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might stand for the truth, that we might tell the truth to the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.